1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. In your Bibles, we'll be looking at verses 25 through 40, finishing up 1 Corinthians 7. We've had several messages in this chapter, and this one should finish it off for us. 1 Corinthians 7 has been a chapter about marriage and priorities. The title of the message is Proper Priorities in the Last Days. In verses 1 through 9, Paul addressed those believers who were not yet married. And he taught them that it is better for a person to marry than to fall into fornication. So if they had temptations of the flesh, it would be far better for them to pursue marriage and to get married so that they could have an, a, a biblical outlet for that temptation than to, to fall into a sinful life of fornication. He also mentioned at the time that if that is not a temptation for a particular person, that there are some benefits to remaining unmarried. In verses 10 through 16, Paul addressed those believers who were already married. He taught that they should not leave their spouse for any reason, even in light of Paul's recommendation to remain single. So him telling them that they should perhaps consider remaining single was not um, intended to encourage divorce under any circumstances, and we talked about that. In verses 17 through 24 then, Paul addressed every believer, exhorting them to abide in their calling, not to feel the compulsion to change their physical circumstances because they are a believer, but rather to use the freedom that they have been given in Christ to take the circumstances which they've been given and to use them for the glory of God. Now, of course, this is um, within the framework of morality. There are people who, when they get saved, they need to change some things. There are people that have, pr- uh, they're, they're in a profession and they get saved and they can no longer pursue that profession because it's not moral. There are people that have certain lifestyles in their lives and when they get saved, they need to set that lifestyle aside because it's not moral. That's not what Paul was talking about. Paul was talking about the, the physical circumstances that we find themselves in uh, that, that do not contradict biblical morality. Whether it's a job or whether it's being married or unmarried, Paul says, whatever state you are in as a Christian, you being in a Christian does not necessitate that you leave that state. You being in a Christian doesn't mean you need to drop your job. You being a Christian doesn't mean you need to get married or you need to get divorced or be unmarried. None none of that has anything to do with being a follower of Christ. So abide in the calling wherein you are. And this brings us to verses 25 through 40. I've been kind of telling you we're we're getting there for several weeks on this because all throughout this teaching, Paul has, has encouraged people to remain unmarried. And that may be a little bit troubling, stirring, confusing for some in this room. It's... It's, uh, th- th- this group is not as connected to uh, conservative uh, Baptist culture as perhaps some other Baptist churches are. However, in, in large portions of conservative Christianity, particularly among women, marriage is what you do. But as we've looked at these passages of Scripture, as Paul speaks to both men and women, he has said it's better for you to remain unmarried. And I've said, don't worry about it, we'll get there. Well, we're here. That's what we're going to be referencing today. Paul seemingly addresses those in this passage that have some measure of obligation. He's addressed the married, he's addressed the unmarried, 
And now he's addressing a group of unmarried people, but it seems as though this group of unmarried people do, in fact, have some measure of obligation placed upon them. Uh, perhaps uh, a betrothal, what, what we would call today an engagement. Uh, being betrothed and being engaged were two very different things. Uh, our, our idea of engagement is not what the Bible speaks of when it speaks of betrothal. But perhaps there was some understanding or, or measure of commitment or expectation placed upon folks. And Paul was going to speak to them today. Whether a person who is betrothed or engaged to another, or whether it's a father who has committed his daughter to another, something that was very common in the custom of the day, Paul will be addressing, at least in part, these folks today. And the question is this. Should a person break up a preordained commitment or a, or a cultural expectation due to Paul's advice? Should they break up a preordained commitment or should they break up a cultural expectation due to Paul's advice? So, the audience of Paul's advice in these verses is those who have a decision to make about their future. If we were going to place Paul's final statements here in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, into a theme or an emphasis, it would be this. In light of the day's circumstances it seemed likely that marriage would be a hindrance to the believer's ability to faithfully serve the Lord. That's what Paul was saying. In light of your circumstances, Corinthian church, marriage might just be more of a hindrance than a help to you spiritually. And that's what Paul was telling them. It is very circumstantial. It is speaking specifically of the circumstances surrounding the Corinthian church. However, we'll be able to observe both the command and the limitations today, and then seek to carefully apply that to our own lives as we walk through the text. Beginning in verse 25, let's read a few verses together. Paul says, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. I suppose, therefore, that it is good for the present distress, I say, that it is good for a man so to be. Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. Paul begins by designating the intended audience of his words in verse 25. The Greek word here translated virgin is indeed the, the word that means virgin, parthenos. Both in the New Testament and in classical Greek, this word always referred to an unmarried woman. It, it is quite specifically speaking, it would seem in the Greek and in, uh, through study, to a woman. Now sometimes these women were betrothed, other times not, but they were always unmarried. Now if you have certain translations of your Bible, um, particularly as I was looking into it, uh, the English Standard Version or the Revised Standard Version, you might see concerning the betrothed or concerning the unmarried. Now, these translations, along with many others, go in a bit of a, a different, actually I would say an entirely different interpretive path than the King James Version chose to go. Now, the path they chose is a bit more acceptable to the Western mind. The idea that Paul is writing specifically to any betrothed or unmarried person. That, that is far more acceptable to a politically correct society that we find ourselves in. And it seems to solve a couple of confusing statements that we'll find in the text. But the problem is it's somewhat grammatically inconsistent with the Greek. 
These translations take pretty, pretty heavy license with the Greek. They pull words away from their understood and accepted meaning from the day and give them a little bit of a different gloss in order to help make an interpretive decision a little bit easier for them. One of the basic tenets of work when you're translating is that you are assuming that the person who wrote what you're translating wrote it with the intent of being understood. It's kind of silly if you don't assume that the person wrote it with the intent of being understood, right? Have you ever had that happen to you before where somebody wrote a letter to you and you used plain English and you said something in plain English and they read, when they read that letter, they, they looked at it and they said, now what did he mean by that? What did he mean by that? And they get all worked up and maybe offended and they start to second guess what you said and they come to you with this letter or an email and they say, look at this. What were you trying to say to me? Well, exactly what I told you. No, what do you mean by it? Well, exactly what it means, right? When we're writing and we're seeking to communicate to someone, we are going to write using conventional, standard English using the norms of language so that what we write is what they understand. And the last thing we want to do is take what somebody wrote and try to confuse the meaning of it or change the meaning of it to try to gain understanding of it. Because then we're just going to get things all goofy. If there is an understood and acceptable meaning to something that's written, then we should take it as if it was intended to be understood the same way it was written. And so, when, when we look at what's happening in this passage, a lot of Bible translations, they, they didn't quite understand or feel comfortable with the, the, the meaning as it seemed in the Greek. So they translated it in such a way that changed the meaning of the Greek from that which is conventional or understood to that which is a little bit outside of convention in order to make it a little more interpretively clean. And that's not a good idea. It's really not a good idea. So I encourage you, as I've studied this out, I am very comfortable with what the King James translation has to say. Now, that being said, I don't understand everything. The way the King James translated it and the way it seems laid out, things could go a, a couple of different ways with translation. We don't have as firm a grasp on what it means, but we have a firmer grasp on what it's saying. I'd rather have a, a stronger grasp of what it's saying than necessarily having a stronger grasp on what it means because the Holy Spirit can fill in those gaps. I, I trust you're with me on that a little bit. I, I, I dug into a little bit of translation theory this morning because um, in this particular passage, I was a little bit concerned as I studied other translations as to what they had to say. So if Paul wrote to be understood, which he typically does, then we must understand his target audience to be specifically unmarried women. And he'll be speaking to the fathers and he'll be speaking to men a little bit. But as he says concerning virgins, that word in the classical Greek, that word in the Bible is never used outside of speaking of women who had not had physical relationships with a man who were unmarried. It's not speaking just generally of anyone. Not inherently only betrothed women and certainly not just... And certainly not unmarried men. The second half of this verse, verse 25, says, I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy. 
He says that he has no commandment of the Lord. We looked at this several weeks ago. The fact that Paul says that he has not received any commandment of the Lord on this. In other words, Jesus Christ, when he was on this earth, did not speak to this issue. But Paul is going to speak to this issue. As I mentioned then, I'll mention again now, this is not an authority change here. We can't say, well, because this is not from the Lord, this is from Paul, there's less authority behind it. No, because Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is not an authority change, this is a perspective change. Paul says, and he made made it very clear when he was writing, these are the things that the Lord has commanded. Jesus Christ commanded this while he was on the earth. These are the things that he did not command, but that through the Holy Spirit, I am telling you as a representative of God, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So one is on the authority of Jesus Christ himself, the other is on the authority of the Holy Spirit. Neither, it's the same authority, they're both God. So we should not see these words as lesser in authority, we should just see them as Paul saying, this is not a command from Christ, this is a command from the Holy Spirit to elaborate on Jesus Christ's teaching. And by the way, they'll never contradict. They will never contradict. And so he says, I have no commandment from the Lord, but I'm going to give my judgment as one that has been, um, one that has obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. And he says this, I suppose, therefore, this, that this is good for the present distress, I say, that it is good for a man so to be. I hope you had a flag come up in your mind. I told you that we're speaking of unmarried women. And here it says, a man so to be. What's going on there? Why, why, why is it a man so to be if we are talking about concerning virgins? And this was one of the first areas where that interpretive principle um, begins to get a little bit confusing. I would disagree with the word the King James used here, but the translation is valid. The word men, the word translated men there is, is a more generalized word. In English we have... Um, Typically, it's falling out of favor because of political correctness. But typically, we have used the general, we have used the masculine pronoun as the gender neutral. Correct? If there is a group of people, uh, and and we are just referencing a person in that group, we we don't want to necessarily speak to gender. We will use he. Oftentimes, in books with instructions, he will be the pronoun that you'll see there. It's not trying to say that we're a masculine-dominated society. It's simply using the generalized masculine pronoun as a generalized pronoun. And we certainly understand that the word man is oftentimes used to refer to the masculine gender, but we can also say mankind. And as we think of mankind, we're not speaking just of men. We're speaking of men and women. If I were to tell you that it is the will of God that all men be saved... I'm not telling you that only the male gender should be saved from their sins. I'm telling you that everyone, all mankind, it's the Lord's will that all mankind would be saved. And so as we look at this particular passage, and we see that this word virgin is very specifically toward a woman, at least as far as we we can tell grammatically, and then we understand that this word man can be used quite generalized, this doesn't have to throw us. It doesn't have to throw us. Perhaps we could put the word person in there. I suppose it is good for the present distress for a person so to be. And I encourage you as well to take note of this word 
present distress. This statement helps us understand the context in which Paul's advice is given. Paul was anticipating a time of perhaps great trial or great persecution ahead. And so he said, for this present distress, for the time of impending difficulty, my advice is that you folks should not pursue marriage. I will say one more thing as we, before we, we leave this verse in regard to uh, this translation of it's good for a man so to be. It is possible, and this is possibly where some of the other translations went with this word, it is possible that um, Paul would have used this generalized term, it is good for a man so to be, in order to um, expand his definition from just women. Perhaps the question when it was originally given by the church, because he's answering a question here, perhaps the question was specifically in relation to unmarried women. And by using it as good for a man so to be that generalized pronoun, he was expanding his advice, not just to unmarried women who are virgins, but to the entire scope of those who are unmarried. And that is possible as well. And that may have been where um, some of the interpretive direction of other translations decided to go with it or where um, they justified their thought process in that regard. And that's quite possible. So in verse 27, Paul gives his advice. Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. So what, quite clearly here, he is indeed now speaking to men in the church in regard to their binding or loosing of a wife. Within the context of the present dangers that the church was facing, Paul's overriding a principle applied to that which he had said in verses 18 through 24, that they should abide in the calling that they have. And as we continue, we'll see Paul's mindset is not inherently one of self-denial, but rather one of spiritual priority. To whatever degree, and this is, this is the statement, to whatever degree you are personally willing to give up earthly and material loyalties and priorities, you will be more free to pursue spiritual and eternal priorities. That's what Paul is saying here. To whatever degree you are willing to give up earthly material priorities, to that degree you will be able to focus more on spiritual priorities and eternal priorities. And we'll see that as we continue. Verse 28, Paul says, But and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned, and if a virgin marry. So do you, are you seeing the distinction here? He spoke concerning virgins. Perhaps he broadened it to a larger group of people through that generalized pronoun. He focused in on the men saying, are you bound to a wife? Don't be loose. Are you loose to a wife? Don't get a wife. And then he's saying now, if thou marry, thou hast not sinned, and if a virgin marry, so we're seeing a distinction there between the man who would take a wife and the virgin here, she hath not sinned. Notice the virgin is specifically speaking of a woman. She hath not sinned sinned. So if we were to expand the definition of virgin to anyone that's unmarried, anyone that's betrothed, well now we've got a little bit of a contradiction with verse 28 where the virgin is specifically spoken of in the feminine context. Perhaps I'm confusing you this morning, but I'm trying to help you here see uh, why this passage has been confusing to a lot of people. And I'm trying to peel away some of the confusion because a lot of it was found behind a desk of somebody who had decided to translate a Bible a different way. 
We need to be careful when we approach various translations because sometimes they're not accurate. In verse 28, Paul makes it very clear that marriage is not wrong in any way. In fact, most of the New Testament teaching in regard to the importance of marriage was written by Paul. We talked about that last time. Excuse me, but Paul also does warn that with marriage comes, look in verse 28, trouble in the flesh. With marriage comes trouble in the flesh. That word in the Greek, trouble, literally means pressure. Literally, pressure. And Paul would have them to be spared from this trouble. Now, I doubt there's any folk in this room who are married who would classify their marriage as being trouble. Now, there may be, uh, well, if if we're honest, we will admit that there are troubles in marriage. But marriage in and of itself, when I think of marriage, I don't think of trouble. Perhaps society is trying to paint it that way. But that's not what I think of. I think of joy. I think of, of, of help. <laughs> I think of assistance. I think of, of encouragement. I think of companionship. I don't think of trouble. And yet Paul says that in marriage there are certain troubles. There is joy in marriage, but with that joy comes frustration, responsibility, limitations, difficulties. It's difficult when two people who live separate lives try to merge their lives into one, isn't it? It's difficult for a man to have the pressure not just to feed himself, but to feed his family. And as that family gets bigger, that pressure grows. There's pressure upon a man to provide. There's pressure on a man to protect. Miscommunication, confusion, selfishness, pride, social pressures... Difficulties surrounding marriage that single folk will never have to know. If you're single in this room, you're sitting there saying, yeah, I read that in a book once. Or, yeah, I saw that on a sitcom once. Or, uh-huh, I've heard, I've heard someone say that. But you can't understand. I was talking to missionaries this past week about how my theology changed when I became a pastor. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to become a pastor. Your, 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 your pastor loves to sit behind a desk and study and write. I would have been happy to stay in the academic environment for my entire life, to keep getting doctorates for the rest of my life, to be one of those perpetual students, and to write a bunch of books. But I knew that I was missing something in my theology because it it never really hit the road. The rubber never really hit the road. When I became a pastor, my theology did change. Now, my overriding theology didn't, but the way that theology worked itself out into real life changed because I finally experienced what it meant to be a pastor, what it meant to be in the ministry. When you get married, your understanding of marriage changes. Your, your concept of what it means to be a companion, to have a companion, changes. And so if, if you haven't been married in this room, then you don't necessarily understand all of what I'm trying to say, but, but let me say that Paul is right. That there is trouble in the flesh with marriage. I wouldn't say that's the overriding theme of marriage, but, but it's there. And Paul says, I would spare you from that. I would spare you from the difficulties that would come with marriage, not because of the difficulties themselves, because oftentimes there's a great blessing, is there not, in working through those difficulties and in serving the Lord together growing together in the Lord, I wouldn't trade that for anything. But, 
spiritually speaking, priorities have to change when you get married. There are limitations when you get married. Paul is warning about the tendency of all of the things of this earth, particularly surrounding marriage and responsibility, that would distract us from the spiritual priorities which are more important. And again, you say, Pastor, family, distraction? Think of all the ways that you've been able to serve the Lord greater because of your family. The Psalms speak of our children as arrows. And those arrows in the hand of a mighty man are shot out and can affect the whole world. Family is not a bad thing. There's a lack of flexibility that comes with marriage. That comes with family. And it goes without saying, if you didn't have a family, you'd have more time on your hands, wouldn't you? You would. And this could be devoted toward discipleship. This could be devoted toward evangelism. And that's what Paul is saying here. That's what Paul is saying. He's not anti-marriage. He's not anti-family. He's simply saying what we all know. That family and marriage takes time, effort, responsibility, takes our priority. And every element of this world that we give priority to is indeed taking away some element of priority from things that we could be doing, spiritually speaking. Verses 29 through 31, Paul reveals that the compulsion of this perspective is that time is short. Look what he says in verse 29. But this I say, brethren, that time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none, and they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not, and they that buy as though they possess not, and they that use this world as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passeth away. Paul may have meant several things by this. First, perhaps he meant that time was short because of the present distress. That it's a distressing time, that persecution is on its way, that time is short, that you all might die soon. Perhaps, secondly, he was speaking more in a general sense that um, our days are limited. Moses said in Psalm 90, he asked God to teach us to number our days. He said, if you're lucky, you'll hit 70 years old or maybe 80 years old. So God, teach us to number our days because the time is short. Or it may have been in, thirdly, in the imminent return sense that we see in Scripture, the reality that Christ could come at any moment and we need to be ready so time is short because He could come right now or now. Time is short. And so we need to be busy about the Father's work. So it could mean any of those three things. We talked about that a little bit in missions conference. One of the ends in the mission acrostic that Missionary Mills gave was now. Now is the time because there may not be a tomorrow. Now is the time because there may not be two hours from now. Now is the time because we have people to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ and time is short. And that's what Paul is saying here. There is a present distress, he says. There's a time right now of distress or it's coming. And I would spare you from those things that will strip your attention from the spiritual work that you have to do and place it upon the things of this world. I would spare you from that, he says. Regardless of which of these he means, which of those types of now he means, the message is the same. Since there's only so much time in a day and only so many days in our lives, 
and the Lord could return at any moment, the need to yield physical priorities in deference to spiritual priorities is growing daily. And when persecution arises, the typical structures of life and family become all that much more difficult to sustain as each believer fears for his own life and his own well-being. Simply put, it's kind of put this way. The fewer eggs that you have in the world's basket, the easier it will be when the world seeks to deny us of what we have, whether it's our possessions or our very lives. I've often thought before of this concept in regard to my family, how much more difficult martyrdom is in my mind because I have a family. Theoretically speaking, martyrdom doesn't bother me. That, that, that concept doesn't bother me. But it's hard for me to think about leaving my family behind. Physically speaking, the idea of, of going out and, and doing dangerous things in the name of the Lord doesn't bother me. But it does when I realize that I have a family. And I couldn't imagine my little girls having to grow up without a daddy because of circumstance like that. And so, though the idea and the, the Lord gives grace for that which is needful, my family adds a whole extra layer of complication to that thought process. And that's the kind of thing that Paul is saying here. The fewer possessions we have, the less we have to lose, right? Right? The fewer possessions we have, the less that, that they can take away from us. The fewer loyalties we have to this earth, the less we have to give up if God asks us to give it up. So, Pastor, is Paul telling me to strip out of my life every earthly joy for the sake of the spiritual preparedness and flexibility? To get rid of all amusement, to stop having fun, to deny myself the joys of family, to own only the bare essentials, to eat only bread and water, to make sure that there's nothing I'll miss because if it's all taken away, then I won't miss it anyway? No, that's not what Paul is saying. But yes, that's kind of what Paul is saying. No, throughout the scriptures and even in 1 Corinthians, we see that Paul has mentioned the liberties that we have in Christ. We have freedom to marry and raise a family. We have freedom to enjoy the blessings of human progress and ingenuity and technology. And we know that we can serve God in every venue. That we can abide in the calling wherein we are and still serve God. Raising a family is serving God. It is. Raising a family is serving God. Being a testimony in the workplace is serving God. Paul's not saying, and I'm not saying this morning, that if you have a family, you can't serve God, or you're not serving God, or you're limited in serving God as far as your family's concerned, because fathers and mothers, you're raising up the next generation. But, yes, to a degree, Paul is saying that whatever, to whatever degree you are willing and content to yield attachments to this earth, earthly priorities and place instead heavenly priorities in your life, you should do so. If you have the grace to do it, do it. If you have the grace to sell everything that you own and live bare minimum so that you can give extra to the church and you can give extra to the needs of God's people and you can devote your time to things other than television and video games and such, well, then if, if you have that grace and you have that ability and you can do it and you're willing to do it, do it. Give it up. 
If you are single in this room and you have the grace by which you could remain single and serve the Lord with every waking moment of your day and not have to worry about women, how to please your husband, men, how to, how to please and serve your wife, and not have to worry about, about feeding your family, and, and you can be flexible. I think of Dan's aches right now. Your son has some flexibility. And he uses that flexibility to the best of his ability. I mean, he's hitchhiking across the country. He is working anywhere he can to serve the Lord with his ability. And that doesn't mean he's never going to marry, but it means that for this time, he has chosen to yield that privilege on the altar of flexibility for, for God and for his word. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about today. If a man or a woman finds it in their heart and in their ability to sacrifice some of those earthly goods, to sacrifice the steady job, to sacrifice the pension, to sacrifice the retirement, to sacrifice the privilege of family and marriage, to yield it all on the altar of service to God, then by all means, do it. Do it. You met Missionary Mills this past week. Missionary Mills has a few young ladies that Their first time in China was when I went, eight years ago. And they finished their degrees and their obligations and they went and they have been in China now for five years. And they're single and they're serving the Lord. And it may not be forever, but they have an ability to serve the Lord there in China in their current situation in a way that they may not have when they have a family. And that's what Paul is speaking of here. That's what Paul is pointing to. He's not pointing to required asceticism. He's not saying we sell everything we have and we, we, we all be, divorce our, our families and we all refuse to, to get married and we go sit on top of hills and we just stare up into the clouds until he comes again. But what he is saying is to whatever degree you are willing to give up earthly priorities for spiritual and heavenly priorities, do it. And serve God with your entire life. So Paul's not necessarily referencing right versus wrong here, is he? He's referencing good, better, and best. He's referencing the grace that God has given you to serve in whatever capacity he has. Verses 32 and 33. Paul says, But I would have you without carefulness, He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. So Paul says, I I would love for you to not have that care. I'd love for you to be free of care. That's what he's saying. Be without carefulness. I'd love for you to be free of care. There's a good opportunity in the state next door, there's a revival going on. Up, I'm gone. I'm going to be there. I'm going to support them. A church is being planted five hours away. Okay, I'm going to go there. I'm going to get a part-time job. I'm going to help that church. Okay, that church is established. Where can I go next? What flexibility? What opportunity? No care, right? Now, certainly there's other cares. But you're not having to drag a family around. You're not worried about, well, how am I going to uh, get them educated? How, how am I going to keep them healthy? Uh, are they going to be able to be socially adjusted if we're constantly moving around? Uh, um, can our family uh, have the time that it needs, the priorities that it needs? You don't have any of that. 
So Paul says there's coming a time when, when those that have wives, they need to, they're going to have to act as though they don't have any because they're, they're going to be needing to, in a present distress situation, like he's speaking of in 1 Corinthians, they're going to be hiding in caves. They're going to be running from the law. They're going to be having to be very down low. They're going to be martyred. They're going to have to do that without worrying about what's going to be happening to their family. Those that are weeping, they're going to have to act as though they didn't weep. Those that are rejoicing as though they didn't rejoice. Those that buy as though they had no possessions at all. Those that use the world as not abusing the world because it's all going to pass away and there are bigger things, there are more important things to do. It goes without saying that a married man has more worldly cares than an unmarried man. A married man not only needs to feed himself, he needs to feed his family. Having a family changes everything. Doesn't it? My wife and I are kind of Iron Man drivers. When we go on vacation, it's like, okay, let's just get there. 24 hours away, fine. We'll drive through the night. Doesn't matter. We'll stop at gas stations. We'll fill up. We'll go to the bathroom. We'll eat snacks on the way. It's fine. This summer, we're going to be driving with potty training girls. It's not going to work that way anymore, is it? It's not going to be four and a half hours between stops. Just grab a few snacks. You'll be fine. Sleep. Take turns. All that stuff. It's not going to work that way anymore. My family is going to dramatically change the way I travel. And that's what Paul is saying here. Family changes things. Changes things spiritually as well. Verse 34. There's a difference also between a wife and a virgin. An unmarried woman careth. Here, once again, we see specifically the word virgin as referencing women. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of, her, uh, of the world, how she may please her husband. Same thing about women in verse 44. Whereas the unmarried woman is able to devote herself, both body and soul, to the service of the Lord exclusively, a married woman serves the Lord by devoting herself, body and soul, to her husband and his needs. So while a married woman is still living in obedience to the Lord, she's serving the Lord by serving her husband, she does not have the freedom to minister in this world in the same way an unmarried woman does. So her manner of serving the Lord, wives, you serve the Lord, your primary means of serving the Lord in this life, wives, is to serve your husband. Is to be his helpmeet. That is your primary duty as a wife before the Lord. So yes, you're serving the Lord, you're not in sin or anything of the sort, but you have a responsibility to your husband. And certainly you're serving the Lord by serving Him, but there is a difference, is there not? Because you have all the earthly priorities that come along with serving your husband. And that's what Paul is saying here. Fewer earthly priorities, fewer earthly distractions, greater opportunity to provide spiritual priorities and to pursue those spiritual priorities. Now, Verses 36 to 40, Paul turns his focus more towards instances where marriage is a wise course of action once again. He says in verse 5, uh, excuse me, verse 35, And this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, 
but for that which is comely, and that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. So he says, I'm not trying to cause you to fall to sin or temptation. I'm just trying to encourage you to be able to attend to the Lord and His service without distraction. He says in verse 36 though, But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age and need so require, let him do what he will, he sinneth not, let them marry. There's a great deal of interpretive controversy surrounding what Paul is saying here. And most Bibles will reflect one of two interpretations. Most modern scholars believe that these verses are referencing people who are able or who are already engaged or already betrothed and that his virgin here is speaking about a man's fiance. So uncomely toward his virgin, most new translations say that this would be toward his fiance. That's very westernly acceptable. It's very politically correct. But again, we are seeing an interpretive problem here that goes all the way back to verse 25 and how they've been talking about the word virgin and how they've been seeking to paint this passage. The King James and earlier scholars believed this passage to refer to fathers who were trying to decide whether or not to give their unmarried daughters into marriage. Some of them may have already been betrothed. Some of them may have had arranged marriages or whether they should encourage their daughters to remain unmarried. Now, this doesn't sit well with our society. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why these verses have been altered a little bit in interpretation. The idea of of arranged marriages doesn't sit well in our society. The idea of a, a father being the one that gets to choose whether or not a girl gets married and who she gets married to is not something that, that sits well in our society. But if we carry this, this understanding and this translation through, what I think you're going to see is that I believe Paul was speaking to fathers in regard to their unmarried daughters. But we're not talking about the heavy-handed type consideration here. We're talking about cultural consideration and we're going to see that it seems as though these Christian fathers really cared for their daughters in this regard. The reason why many believe this uh, verse is speaking toward the betrothed couple is because of verse 37 where the language seems to imply that this person is deciding whether or not to keep his virgin. But notice what it's based upon. It says in verse 37, Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but hath power over his own will, and hath so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, doeth well. So, there's some confusion here. Why Why would a father's ability to stand firm and to keep his own heart and to to resist temptation matter if he was giving his daughter away. If she was the one that was going to get married or not get married, why would it matter if the father had the ability to refrain from physical intimacy? There's th- that's where the confusion lies, and that's one of the reasons why this this translation has been changed a little bit in modern virgins. Furthermore, the idea of a father having this authority, of course, is absolutely distasteful in our culture. Now, I mentioned earlier in this message that these other translations take license with the word virgin and they they make it betrothed when we absolutely see no evidence that this word means betrothed or just an unmarried person. There's great license taken in verse 37. This is all going to come together in just a moment. Bear with me. There's also great license taken in verse 38. Excuse me. 
in most modern translations, they interpret this verse. Let me read it. So then he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. They interpret this verse to mean that the man who marries his fiancée does well, but the man who does not marry her does better. Perhaps if you have a different version of the Bible, you'll see that. That he that doesn't marry. But the problem is the word there in the Greek is not does not marry. The word is only used in the Greek to speak of somebody giving someone else in marriage. It's used exclusively for that. So for them to have translated it, the person that would marry his fiancée does well, but the person who will not does better, is to take license with the text that's simply not there. That word does not mean that. So if Paul was trying to get the right message across, then that's not what he meant. What he meant is that the man that, doesn't, that, that gives his virgin in marriage does well, but the man who does not give his virgin in marriage does better. Verses 36 through 38 says this, But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgins, if she pass the flower of her age and need so require, let him do what he will, he sinneth not, let them marry. Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but hath power over his own will, and hath so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, doeth well. So then he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. So what we see here is the confusion because it seems as though a person is decreeing in their own heart that they will not give their virgin based upon their determinations, not her determination. However, again, we see this pronoun he, and this pronoun he can be used somewhat generally. I think one of the better explanations for this is that in verse 37, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, is more of a generalized term for a man who has spoken with his daughter and recognizes her own abilities and her own um, determinations and whether or not she feels as though she would be comfortable not marrying and giving herself to the Lord in that regard. And then that is how this man is making the decision in regard to his daughter. And so because we have that generalized pronoun things can get a little bit confusing. And I will make mention of the fact that there's really no definitive explanation here. If we translate the, the Word of God, the Greek literally, the King James Version is what we get. And it's a little confusing. If we take license with a couple of the words, the word virgin and the word giving in marriage, then we can make it make a whole lot more sense, but we're mistranslating the words. And so that is the problem that we're seeing here. That is the dichotomy. We're either following an, an easy interpretation with a bad translation or we're following a good translation with difficult interpretation. And I'm more comfortable following a good translation with difficult interpretation, particularly in this issue. So it seems as though culturally speaking, that's what Paul was saying. That a father did have authority over his daughter and whether or not she would be given in marriage. And so, based upon his understanding, his determination, and her ability to resist the temptations of the flesh, he would decree one way or another whether or not she ought to or ought not to get married. In other words, it was, at that point, because of culturally speaking, the father was the one that arranged these things, it was in the father's hand, not the daughter's hand to make that decision. The daughter was going to have to rest with the decision of the father regardless of what that was, she would have to rely upon his wisdom 
to make the decision as to whether or not she should be married or she should not be married. And that meshes culturally with the arranged marriages of the day. It just doesn't mesh with our sensibilities as far as what it means to get married. Verses 39 and 40. Matt, I'm going to be skipping a slider. I don't, I don't even know if you're with me anymore. Poor guy. I'm all over the place in my notes. Um, verses 39 and 40 are wrap-up. Paul says this. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will. Only in the Lord. But she is happier if she so abide after my judgment. And I think also that I have the Spirit of God. Paul states as a matter of uh, the law here, that, a mar- that married spouses are bound to each other as long as they live, so that the believer may not remarry for as long as her spouse is alive or his spouse is alive. If their spouse were to die, they are free to remarry, but only in the Lord, only to a believer is what that means. However, Paul again mentions that this widow would be better if she can live her life unmarried because then she could devote more of her time to Christ, having fewer attachments to this world. All right, all that being said, I've made that as clear as mud. Let's apply this morning. Three ways that we're going to apply. Number one, in regard to life decisions, wait on God's will. Number two, in regard to circumstances, every believer must be willing to place God above anything else. And number three, in regard to priorities, fewer worldly priorities allow for more spiritual priorities. Let's talk about our first one together. In regard to life decisions, wait on God's will. Speaking in context to what we've talked about today, marriage, I'm probably talking mostly to, believe, to believing teenagers. The children aren't quite anywhere near interested in making that decision yet or thinking about that. And most of, of, of the adults have have decided one way or another. But anyone that's unmarried, that is in that realm, whether you're single or whether you're... Uh, um, a single adult or whether you're a teenager and you're thinking toward that end, um, Paul is speaking to you here. When I speak of life decisions, I'm speaking of things like marriage and family and the amassing of personal possessions, buying a house, buying cars, those sorts of things. Folks, it's not wrong to be married, nor is it wrong to want to be married. But it is not wrong to be willing to live this life unmarried either. And if Paul's words about marriage should mean anything to us, it is that we should not spend any amount of time pursuing, personally seeking, devoting our time and our efforts to finding a spouse. If God wants you to be married, He'll bring the right person at the right time, and He will make His will abundantly clear. Now, that doesn't mean you, you have to resist or reject. You know, you don't carry around a knife and start poking people as they come up and try to get near you. But, and particularly for those of you that are interested in going to Christian college and pursuing um, that environment, which is uh, very heavily um, geared toward finding a spouse and those sorts of things, Folks, don't put your energies into that. Children, teens, single adults, don't put your energies into that. Allow the Lord to work. Don't don't resist it, but don't put your energies into it. Don't make that your focus. 
don't make that your focus. If you blindly pursue marriage at all costs, you might be giving yourself to a family when God would be able to use you much better as a single person, at least for a time. Now, as I mentioned this point, I specifically want to speak toward the women in the room because Christian culture um, very heavily leans upon the idea that women need to be married and they need to raise a family. And as a matter of fact, they'll call this a woman's highest calling. You've heard that many times and that a woman's highest calling is to be married and to have a family. Now, you know me. You've heard my preaching. I do believe that the concept of a stay-at-home mom, the homeschooling mom, that's a tremendously high calling. But serving God is a woman's highest calling. In whatever capacity He has called her to. Has He called you to be married? To have a family? Then yes, I agree that staying at home, raising your children, is your highest calling. But the idea that a woman who is not married is not pursuing God's highest calling for her is not biblical. If this passage is true, then that's not biblical. If this passage is true, then it is not wrong for a woman to be single. And you know what was interesting about that? Paul wasn't speaking to 21st century Americans where a woman can go out, get a job, have an apartment, do her own thing, be entirely independent. He was speaking to Greek and Roman Corinthian culture where the woman was still indeed oftentimes arranged in a marriage, did not have the freedom and ability to pursue careers like women do today. And yet Paul did not tell the women, go out and get married. He told them, if you can at all abide, remain unmarried. Serve the Lord with that time. Serve the Lord with those priorities. There's a real benefit, not just to unmarried men, but to unmarried women. And that at a time when women had many fewer opportunities and independence to succeed in culture. Now, it may be that some godly young ladies in this room are meant for something other, or at least originally, earlier part of their life, meant for something different than simply having a husband and a family. It may be that God could use that flexibility of your singleness to impact people in a way that you never could as a married person. It may be that God would send you to the mission field for a few years. It may be that God would uh, have you working in a local church where you can be unwaveringly flexible in ministry because you don't have a husband and kids. So while I believe marriage is indeed honorable and right and the scriptures tell us it is, I think conservative Christian culture has placed an undue amount of stress upon young women finding a husband and raising a family to the negligence of everything else in life. Now, I'm no women's lib guy. Far from it. But let's be scripturally honest here. Let's be scripturally honest with, which, with what Paul is commanding in regard to women and men and marriage. So a young man and a young lady I know. Young lady went to the mission field. 
right out of college. She's been there that, now for several years, serving the Lord, just doing what God had called her to do. Single lady, on the field, serving the Lord. Guy I know went on a mission survey trip. Ended up there. He was going there because he had a burden for these people. Serving the Lord, doing what God has called him to do. He's in his 30s and still single. And he met her while she was over there. And he was over there. She was on the mission field. Doing what God had called her to do. He went over there just doing what God had called them to do. They met. And they began a relationship. And now they are headed down that relationship path. Not married. But headed down that path as they're courting. And what an incredible example of this very thing. That this young lady... Instead of just blindly pursuing a husband and a family, pursued the mission field. And the Lord eventually brought someone along with the same burden for the same people in the same field as she was busy doing the work. So did that mean the Lord never wanted her to be married? Well, time will tell how the story will end, but no, I don't think so. But for that time, for that circumstance, she had other things to do for the Lord. And when she, should she get married? Should they get married? Her life is going to change dramatically. Because whereas she could get up and go about her day and do what she was going to do and be very flexible, now she has a husband to care for then she's going to have a family to care for. And that's going to change her life entirely. Change the dynamics of what it means to be a missionary entirely. If that's what the Lord has called her to do, then she'll be happy with that and she'll be serving the Lord. But what a testimony it is that she didn't just jump right in. She waited on God's timing for God's man. And that's just an example of what Paul is speaking of here. So in regard to life decisions, folks, wait on God's will. Just wait on God's will. He's not going to let it pass by you. In regard to circumstances, every believer must be willing to place God above everything else. God forbid that our generation should see great persecution for our faith, yet it's possible. Paul's warning about the things which we have in this life is focused upon this possibility. On the day when we're called to either renounce our faith or be killed, those with families might have a harder time. On the day when all of our possessions are confiscated because we're labeled hate mongers, those with more possessions are going to have a harder time. On the day when we are all broken up by gender and interned to protect society from us, husbands and wives are going to have to separate. And they're going to have a harder time with that. So while Paul says it's good for the present distress that the Corinthians were going to face, not to have such priorities, we could see how even in our times there might be some led of the Lord not to marry. We still live in a time where things are fairly good for Christians. You can have a family. You can do your thing. It's not that much of a hindrance to ministry. 
but in your heart, regardless of the choices you make, to marry, not to marry, to buy, not to buy, you need to have it all yielded to God. Paul says he wants to spare them the trouble and the difficulties that come with being devoted to material things in this life. Third and finally, in regard to priorities, fewer worldly priorities allow for more spiritual priorities. The priorities we place upon things of this earth strip from us time and money that we could be spending on God. Family is a wonderful thing, but I'm limited in my ministry because I do have a family. Amusements are completely lawful, but the time I spend pursuing television and video games and such is stripping time that I could be spending in ministry. And as we close today, my encouragement to you is that as you read the words of Paul here, you glean from them that by God's grace you should be spending as much of your time and priorities and money on the things of God as you can. I encourage you to take inventory and find things in this life that maybe are out of balance. That you're giving way too much to the world and not enough to God. Are your priorities in the right place? Are you seeking the kingdom of God first and foremost? Have you been so focused upon earthly possessions that you you have stripped yourself from the ability to be used for heavenly things? What does God want you to do? Does He want you to sell everything and take your family to the mission field? Does He want you to reprioritize your time so that you can be spending more time serving Him through evangelism? Does He want you to remove some subscription services or sell something so that uh, it can benefit the, the people of God? Does He want you to remain single so that your time can be given exclusively to the things of God? These are the questions that ought to be welling up in your heart through the message this morning. Confusing text aside, where are your priorities? Are they all given to God? Are you pursuing God? Let's pray together.